This passage begins with the phrase, some time later. And while we might be quick to overlook that opening, it's important to note because we know that Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And we know that by the time he's brought before Pharaoh in the next chapter, he'll be 30 years old. So while we don't know how long Joseph served Potiphar before being cast into prison, we do know that combined, Joseph spends about 11 years in Potiphar's house and in prison. When this morning's passage begins, Joseph's been in prison for some time, but God continues to be with Joseph, even though he now finds himself behind bars. Last week, we saw that Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar, the captain of the guard, and he quickly sees that the Lord is with Joseph. And as a result, Joseph is quickly made the overseer of Potiphar's entire house. Now that ends up turning out bad for Joseph because he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of rape. But even in prison, Joseph is quickly recognized to be a man whom God is with. And as a result, the prison warden gives Joseph an unheard of amount of freedom and authority within the prison. Joseph is in charge of all the prisoners and the warden trusts Joseph so much that it says he doesn't even pay attention to anything Joseph is responsible for. Now it's easy to attribute this pattern to Joseph himself. This is a guy that gets things done. He's super talented. He's trustworthy. Do you know anyone that has that kind of personality in your life? That no matter where they end up, they're always successful? When I think of someone who always seems to excel at whatever he's doing, I actually think of the actor Steve Martin. Most people don't realize this, but in the 70s, he was actually the first comedian to perform comedy in large spaces like arenas to thousands of people at a time. No one had ever done that. And he's written some incredible screenplays and he's written some award-winning plays. He's a novelist. He's written three awesome novels, but he's also a comedic and a dramatic actor. He's an accomplished musician. He won a Grammy award. He plays the banjo. He writes his own music. Anything he touches seems to turn to gold. But when it comes to our text, Moses doesn't attribute Joseph's gifts to Joseph. He attributes them to God. God's always with Joseph, blessing him and protecting him. So that even when Joseph is unjustly put in prison, even there God gives him favor in the eyes of the warden so that Joseph is given a measure of freedom we would never associate with being in prison. God's protecting Joseph. He's looking out for him. And in the midst of an injustice, God is with him. God is always with him. And God is always with us. We've talked about this truth so much during the season, but it's something we have to be constantly reminded of because we constantly forget it. Maybe this week you woke up one day and had a great time in God's word. You had a sweet time in prayer. You had a productive day. For parents out there, your kids were behaving. And the day, even despite the season, felt good. You felt sure God was with you. And you'd be right. He was and he is. But then the next day you overslept. You didn't pray in the morning. You had a rough conversation with a coworker. Someone you know got sick. And again, if you're a parent, the day was meltdown after meltdown. And on this day, you felt the exact opposite about God. You felt like he abandoned you. He wasn't with you. Maybe you falsely thought he was mad because he didn't pray in the morning, so he left you high and dry. But no. He's with us on both the easy and the hard days, and he loves us on both. Joseph is in prison, and yet he's been blessed in small but significant ways. 
He's given a position of leadership. He's given a certain amount of freedom. And it's hard not to think of Andy Dufresne from the Shawshank Redemption, who finds favor with the warden and is given the chance to work in the prison library and then later the responsibility to balance the warden's financial records. Joseph is experiencing blessings even now when he finds himself behind bars. And I share this because in our current season of life, we're being invited by God to grow in our ability to be thankful for all the tiny blessings we often overlook in the midst of a day, especially because things are so hard. As I watch the news and see families waiting in line for the better part of the day, just to get a small bag of groceries from a food bank and realizing that food banks are having to outbid supermarket chains that used to donate food to them for free just a couple of months ago, I'm reminded how blessed our family is just to have food on our table. Though I have daily battles with my kids, there's also daily laughter and times of joy in our house. And it's important for me to remember and cling to these moments because they too are blessings. We're also able to better see our blessings when we hear other people share what they've been blessed by. On some of the days when I've felt most discouraged or sad in this season, it's been connecting via text message or during a prayer meeting or Zoom call that some of you have shared your blessings and they've helped me see my own even better. I remember probably the first or second week I was texting with Anderson about how challenging I was finding the days with the kids. And to hear him gush about how happy he was to be spending so much time with Allison, I was reminded to be thankful for my kids. And then his brother John has been using this time to finish reading the Bible, which has been a huge encouragement for Pastor Tom and I. But every once in a while, God shows you that he's present and can bless you even when every fiber of your being and everything the world teaches us says a blessing is impossible. Several weeks ago, our sister Sarah lost her father due to coronavirus. And on the night following that morning that happened, we had our daily prayer meeting. And it was a hard night. It was so hard to not be able to be with Sarah in person, to hug her, to sit with her, and we all were feeling that. And after everyone shared and listened, we began praying. And Sam prayed a really honest and raw prayer. I'm only paraphrasing, but he shared his anger with God. He shared how overwhelmed he felt. And then he said something along the lines of, I know you're good and you're here, but show us, show us God. And as people prayed one by one, spontaneously, people began reading God's word. Solomon read Psalm 23. Edward shared a poem. Esther Ursain, I don't remember, who shared from Ecclesiastes. And then Sarah prayed. And on the worst night of her life, she prayed this beautiful prayer, a prayer filled with tears, but filled with boldness and hope and trust in God. And as my head was bowed down hearing her pray, I was overwhelmed because I knew I couldn't pray that prayer that night. I could pray for God's comfort, for his peace, for his presence, and for protection for her and Dave and the boys. But I couldn't praise him the way that she was praising him. And when we got off that call, I went downstairs and I realized that not only did God answer Sam's prayer, but he used Sarah to answer it. And I was overwhelmed by how and when and where God answers prayers and blesses his people. 
Fast forward to this week and Sarah and Sam are both again at a nightly prayer. And as Sarah is sharing about her upcoming exam and stress and anger and grief, Sam jumped in to encourage her by sharing about the loss of his own father and how God brought Sam to Jesus in the midst of his own suffering. And as I sat in my office witnessing my brother love and encourage my sister, I couldn't help but think about where we were several weeks ago. Now Sam was encouraging Sarah. And then I thought about our prayer meetings. Would we ever have been able to meet and pray and share in the way we have had we not been in this season? Is it true? Can God really meet us and bless us now when we're in the midst of such awfulness? He can and he is. Though Joseph is stuck in prison, God is still blessing him. And though we're in some form of a prison, God is still blessing us. However, despite God's blessings, we can't underplay the reality that Joseph is still in Egypt, far from his family, and now he's in jail for a crime he didn't commit. And as the texts tell us that some time has passed, the temptation must be growing to believe that God's no longer with him. I mean, what good could possibly come from Joseph being stuck behind bars? Even with his responsibilities there, there has to be a temptation to believe that Joseph's experiencing an extended waste of his time since his life is passing him by while he's stuck in prison. And yet, as our passage unfolds, we see God is going to use Joseph in a powerful way. And this comes in the form of two people that are put in the prison with Joseph. What's fascinating is that it's the captain of the guard, likely Potiphar, who appoints Joseph to attend to the prisoners. Commentators have noted that Potiphar, in order to save face, may have dealt harshly with Joseph, despite believing he was innocent. So last week, when we heard about Potiphar's burning anger, it wasn't actually directed at Joseph, but with his wife and the situation he found himself in. Him and his wife would have been humiliated had he believed his slave over his wife, and this would have been extremely embarrassing for a man in his position. So one scholar writes, the proven trustworthiness of Joseph, the fact that he's going to lose the services of a competent slave and his knowledge of his wife's character or lack of it, his anger arguably burns at his wife, not at Joseph. Commentators note that Potiphar could have easily had Joseph executed, but instead he puts him in a prison intended for political prisoners that's on Potiphar's land. The idea is that Potiphar knew his wife was the problem, but he refused to deal with her, so he punished Joseph. But not to the degree that he could have. And here he's putting Joseph in contact with two people of power and influence, officers of Pharaoh. Our text tells us that Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer are thrown into prison because they've offended Pharaoh in some way. And while we don't know the nature of their offenses, we do know that these two men would have had regular access to Pharaoh due to their specific offices. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used to describe their offices is the same word used to describe Potiphar and the captain of the guard in the prison that's given Joseph all this authority. So we're seeing that no matter where Joseph finds himself, God's repeatedly putting Joseph close to people of power and significance, people with direct access to Pharaoh himself. In fact, these two men would have been two of the most important people used to protect Pharaoh from assassination in the ancient world. The cupbearer would have been responsible for bringing and tasting all that would be brought to Pharaoh to drink, kind of like an ancient sommelier. But rather than just suggesting and recommending what it was that Pharaoh should drink, 
he would have been the first to drink anything to make sure that the pharaoh would be safe in drinking it. Poisoning and other attempts at assassinating leaders are not new. And this would have been an easy way of getting at someone, um, especially the cupbearer. So similarly, though, is the baker, right? He would have been in charge of supervising everything that was served at Pharaoh's table. Kind of like if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, Mrs. Patmore, right? But these men were expected to be trustworthy. As one commentator said, right, they also had to be fine judges of character, lest an enemy with intent to poison or hurt the Pharaoh would infiltrate their staffs. So Joseph finds himself in front of two men of power, and God is arranging this meeting so that his glory can be put on display. He's putting these two men before Joseph to both form Joseph's character and reveal the one true God to these men. Time and time again, we're going to see God put people in the right place at the right time to bring about his purposes. We can look through scripture at Esther and Nehemiah, right? But even in modern history, people like Billy Graham have had the ears of presidents and elected officials for decades. And for us, we must see that this remains true today. Wherever we find ourselves, God is putting people before us whom we can not only bless and encourage, but point to the truth about who God is. Though COVID-19 has left us unable to go about our lives with the same level of freedom that we're used to, this is not an obstacle for God to be at work in our lives and in the lives around us. Joseph is prepared and ready for whatever and whomever God places before him. And we must remember that the same holds true for us today. Though some of us are working from home, kids not at school, sporting events are canceled, we have time with family, friends, and classmates on our phones and computers. We have family and some of us extended family at our kitchen tables and in our living rooms every single day. Who is God putting before us and what opportunities is he giving us in this time? When we baptize our kids, we pray and trust that God will bring our children to faith as we do our best to raise them in the knowledge of him. But in this season, those of us with kids have become their teachers as well as their parents. We don't know exactly who our children are going to grow up to be, but what a precious time to point them to God when we fall short as parents, as well as when there's downtime to be able to read or go through the lessons, right, that Sarah and Eunice have been posting every week for our kids. Some of us are with grandparents and parents, and while that has its challenges, God's given us this time to bless and encourage one another. In our passage, the cupbearer and the baker have mysterious dreams, right? That they're unable to interpret. And Joseph, being attentive to them, knows that because he knows the one true God, God can reveal to them what their dreams mean. In Egypt, there would have been professional dream interpreters and historians have noted, right, that the Egyptians and Babylonians compiled dreams, dream books to aid in interpretation. Joseph lacks all of these things. Yet even without the aid of dream books, right, he possesses access to the truth because he's in a relationship with God. Joseph hears the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker and he interprets them. For the cupbearer, he's going to be forgiven his offense and restored to his position in three days. For the baker, unfortunately, the dream's meaning is unfavorable and in three days he's going to be executed. But in providing interpretations for the two dreams, we see that Joseph has been given insight to understand them by God 
because what he says proves to be true. In three days, the cupbearer is restored and the baker is executed. And it's important to note that the form of execution the baker suffers is significant. Commentators have noted that hanging was not typically a form of execution that was, was done, but was specifically a way of dishonoring the corpse of an executed person. So in this case, the baker would have been beheaded and then hung for public view for the birds to eat. So whatever crime the baker was associated with, maybe with an assassination plot, he was punished in a shameful manner. And so Joseph is speaking the truth to people who are desperate to hear it. Imprisoned, without hope, these men want to know what their dreams mean and only God can provide them with the answers. And we're living in a time when many people are finding themselves searching for answers, desperate for hope, and maybe for the first time seriously exploring questions about who God is. Many of you have shared in recent weeks of opportunities that God's given you to share your faith with other people. Esther Kutai shared during a prayer meeting that a neighbor who lives close to them that's been around and been seen more in recent weeks and that it's presented an opportunity to care for them, check in on them and pray for them. Cynthia and Jason have shared that an old classmate of Jason's from medical school has recently reached out to them and has been asking about Christianity in light of everything going on in the world. Tom recently posted a verse from scripture and neighbors whom he's spoken to for years were struck by its power and asked where he had found it. And he was able to talk to them about the Bible. Santo in Atlantic City has said in the season that he's seen God at work to bring people to him to ask questions and seek answers that are only found in Christ. So just like Joseph alone had the answers to the questions being asked of him, we too as Christians have the very words of life in our scriptures. We know the way, the truth, and the life. And while some world you'd say the world is only illusions, we need to let go of it so that we can truly be free. Christianity affirms that the world and our bodies are good creations that have been tarnished by sin. The world and everything in it does matter. And it's so precious to God that he sent his son to redeem what he created. While some worldviews claim we can't really know God or if he loves us, Christianity proclaims that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We say that God made a way through Jesus and that in him, we can be certain of our future with God and his people. While some worldviews say that life is random and meaningless, that suffering is a byproduct of that randomness, Christianity says suffering is not good. It's not part of the world that God made before sin. And that when Christ returns to fully restore his creation, suffering will no longer be a reality. We have a God who knows suffering because he endured it himself in order to bring us home. Christianity understands unity and diversity in a way no other worldview does. Through Christ, communities are formed, though messy, that transcend class and gender and ethnicity and careers. And in the coming weeks and months, like Joseph is placed before the cupbearer and the baker, we're going to be in the presence of people that are looking for the truth. And we have it. We have the good news, the gospel, that God has already won, that God has rescued us as people, and that there is nothing for us to do in order to be rescued but trust in Jesus. So I encourage you to be praying for people in your life that don't know him, to come to faith in him in this season. 
I encourage you to be praying and have attentive ears and hearts so that when someone asks you about what you believe, you'll be able to smile and share the good news with them. The last thing we need to see in this text is the aftermath of Joseph's interpretation. After he gives the cupbearer the good news that he's going to be restored to his position and again serve the Pharaoh, Joseph makes a request. In verse 14, he says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. Joseph sees this opportunity to gain the favor of someone of influence, and he takes it. But when the cupbearer is released, our passage ends by saying, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. As people familiar with Hollywood endings, we expect the grand rescue to happen at the end of this chapter, that the cupbearer is going to sing Joseph's praises and Joseph will be on his way back home to Jacob. But instead he's forgotten. Nothing changes. Why? Well, we don't know why, which is the hardest part of being a human. Because we're not God, we don't understand his ways or his timing. Sometimes it's years later when we look back on certain seasons of life that we can see the way that God was ordering our steps. But even that's only true some of the time. So what are we to think and do in a season of waiting? Well, at least two things. One, we know that we serve a God who's able to use our suffering for our good, the good of others like the cupbearer and the baker in today's passage, and our own good. If God could take the worst crime in history the unjust murder of his innocent and perfect son and bring about redemption, then we can be confident that he can use our suffering as well. One commentator noted the same verse Pastor Tom shared last week. Paul understood this in the midst of his suffering, right? He writes to Rome, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Though Joseph is not released right away, God remains with him and is deepening Joseph's character so that when he's called by God to his next task, he's going to be ready. Grace point, God remains with us as well. And though we're waiting for what's next for us, we know that because God has given us his Holy Spirit, and because he sent his son to die for us, God's love has been poured into our hearts just as his love was poured into Joseph and Paul before us. So if the first thing we know is that God can take suffering and use it, the second thing we see is the preciousness of faithfulness to God. One commentator wrote, Joseph's consistent faithfulness in slavery and in prison was every bit as valuable to God as the deliverance he brought while second in command in Egypt. Faithfulness is faithfulness, regardless of the scale in which God chooses to use it. We find ourselves in a season where we're being encouraged to be faithful in this season with the things God has set before us. If we're home with our parents and siblings, let us love them well and be quick to forgive if we're wronged and confess if we've wronged them. Let us parents spend time with our kids and enjoy this season. If we're able to help a neighbor in need or someone near us, let's do it. Let's continue to seek God in prayer and in his word and reach out to one another. And when you're tempted to despair and when you're frustrated or ashamed by your lack of faithfulness, remember the one who went before you, the one who loved you so much that in his life, death and resurrection, 
your lack of faithfulness has been covered, covered by his love and covered by his blood. We deserve even greater punishment than the cupbearer and the baker. And yet Jesus willingly drank the cup of his father's wrath to the very bottom so that we could be restored to sit at the table with our God. Jesus didn't just offer us bread to fill our stomachs, but his very body on the cross so that we could be given eternal life. Jesus was the truly innocent one who was brought before a corrupt court and then wrongfully imprisoned. And though Pilate's wife had a dream that caused her to urge Pilate to do nothing to Jesus because he was a righteous man, Jesus was condemned to death as his own people pled with Rome to murder him. And while Joseph found favor with the warden and the captain of the guard, Jesus was whipped by those who imprisoned him. He was mocked and stripped naked. He was crowned with thorns and spit on and made to walk to a death reserved only for the worst criminals. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross and the judgment of God so that we can know we're never alone in our sufferings. As my friend Esther wrote, reflecting on these times we're in, she said, he would take it upon himself, the sorrow, the shame, the disgrace, the suffering, the agony, the debt, the damnation, the God forsakenness. He would bear the storm of God's unrestrained and furious wrath on sins that were not his own on a once for all mission to rescue and deliver a broken humanity. He doesn't not care. But three days later, he would not just be restored to offer a drinking cup to a king, now, three days later, Jesus would be declared the true king, the Lord of lords, the one who alone defeated death, who is raised to life and conquered the power of sin and grants everyone who places their faith in him that their sins are forgiven and that their lives don't end with death. And in this season and in every season while we wait for Christ to return, we have to remember this truth that Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross. And while we're waiting like Joseph, we can trust that Jesus is with us and he will return and bring us home. This morning we find ourselves waiting like Joseph, maybe even feeling forgotten in some ways, but nothing could be further from the truth grace point. We've already been rescued by Jesus. We already have new life in him and we will never be under the curse of sin and death again. As we await his return, let's not lose heart, but like Joseph, be ready to respond to the opportunities of God that he gives us in this season and in all the seasons to come. Amen.